Welcome to Classical Education, a podcast for those who believe in rediscovering the art of asking questions, engaging in conversation, and attending to the ideas at the heart of well-ordered teaching and learning. Adrian Fries and Trey Bailey invite you to join them on a journey in pursuit of the true, the good, and the beautiful as we participate in the great conversation and listen to the many voices coming from the world of classical education. Today, I am delighted to welcome Sean Johnson. Uh, Sean is someone who has recently become a friend. If I remember correctly, we first met Sean uh, at a summer conference uh, that was put on by the Searcy Institute. Uh, but I actually was familiar, at least with your name and some of your work by reading some of the things that you have contributed to the Searcy Institute, as well as, well, uh, a magazine that you are contributed to uh, that I subscribe to put out by Searcy by the name of Forma. And so when I got the opportunity to actually meet Mr. Johnson in the flesh and to spend some time with him, I, I jumped at that opportunity and I just found him to be just as uh, articulate and delightful and humane as he is in his writing. So Sean, welcome to the conversation. Well, uh, I'm glad to be here. You'd do me too much credit probably, but, <laughs> but I'm glad to be here. Well, there are so many wonderful things that we have lined up to talk about. Uh, before we jump into the meat of our conversation, I'd like to uh, just tell our listeners a bit about uh, your, 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 your biography, I, I suppose, and, and some of the things that you've done that have brought you to this point in your life. Sure. Um, my understanding is that you uh, grew up in Oregon, uh, but you currently reside in Richmond, Virginia. That's right. where you teach uh, at, uh, at Veritas School, and you teach great books there. Uh, right. and, and, and perhaps over the course of our conversation, you can tell us a bit about some of the classes you've taught and some of those great books you've been able to read with your students. And you hold a BA in the liberal arts from New St. Andrews College and an MA in English from the University of Dallas. That's right. uh, and as I mentioned before, you are a contributor to the former journal which I encourage people to, to look into your work there. And I understand that you have a ongoing dream of one day running a food truck with your <laughs> wife and four children. Yeah, I, uh, I came very close to going to culinary school instead of college. And uh, I, I realized that that would have put a hamper on a lot of other dreams and aspirations that I had, but uh, I still, love to cook. And uh, as I'm sure we'll probably talk about food, it's pretty important to our family life. So uh, yeah, one day. Well, food, food is actually the first topic that I wanted to broach with you because at this conference that I mentioned before, uh, you spoke and uh, I'd, like to, I'd like to read uh, an excerpt from the description that's, that's listed there on the Cersei website. <laughs> if anyone's interested after this, conversation going back and listening to your talk it's available through through their website you can i think for a few bucks you can get the download and and i highly recommend people follow up and listen to that but just as a means of opening up our conversation here i'm going to read 
an excerpt from the description, and perhaps this will be a way for us to launch into our, our conversation. St. John declares that the Father has given all things into Christ's hands, while St. Paul tells us we are Christ's co-heirs. But in an age of boutique entertainment, specialized diets, and vain dissipation, all things can be a hard pill to swallow. We don't want to affirm the goodness of God's world, our birthright, if that includes dissenting opinions on the radio, Brussels sprouts, or a Regency novel about manners. A proper preparation for glory, then, means putting pickiness to death, replacing it with taste, and stretching the soul until it is large enough to embrace the whole cosmos." End quote. And as I remember listening to your talk, you know, you, you talked about pickiness, and of course you're using, you're using a word that we often use when we're talking about, you know, thinking about food and, and, and the pickiness surrounding, um, you know, what people like or, or don't like. And then you talked about the importance of taste. So I just wonder if you could give us a bit of a, an appetizer, let's say. Uh, sorry for the puns. Um, <laughs> classic, classic dad jokes here. Maybe just talk to our listeners a bit about what you were doing in that talk. And this will be a good way for us to get into how your love of food has informed your own work as a teacher. Yeah. Uh, the, the title of that talk was something like The Devil Loves a Picky Eater. Uh, and uh, I wanted to talk about how the we have really we live in this age where we're almost encouraged to cultivate uh, a kind of pickiness uh, where everybody uh, the world is a buffet uh, if you don't like one grocery store there are 12 others and they all do something a little bit different and uh, everybody uh, there, are, there are even soap and toothpaste you can special order uh, on the internet to get just the right kind uh, to suit your your preferences. Uh, and they, though some of those things might be uh, benign, uh, the spirit of it all is uh, seems to be a rejection of more things than than an embrace of things. We uh, pick our our particular favorites at the expense of everything else. Uh, and that but that translates into uh, the, the dinner table. I talked about in the talk I uh, mentioned uh, the way you treat picky children at a dinner table. Uh, what that translates into often is that we uh, shrink our capacity to enjoy uh, and be thankful for so many good things uh, because we begin to idolize these preferences and favorites that we have. Uh, and that that's uh, easily seen also in the realm of education, uh, where uh, the modern student uh, often has uh, cultivated favorite forms of entertainment or pastimes or dissipations uh, that have shrunk their ability to enjoy a lot of the, um, the good things that you're laying on the table before them. Uh, I always think of C.S. Lewis and uh, the weight of glory. He talks about the, the boy who 
would rather make mud pies in the slums than go on a holiday to the seaside because he doesn't know how great that thing is. Uh, and he's, he's come to, to love this lesser thing at the expense of all better things. I could see how one would be quite stunted or as you said, um, you know, the palate sort of shrinks so that one wouldn't even be able to appreciate necessarily in the same way um, something uh, if they weren't open and ready to receive it. I, I'm reminded again of, of something that I think I, a story I heard um, on a podcast Angelina Stanford tells a story about when she was a child, how she developed a real obsession with with candy and and different uh, different sweet sweet things. and and her her father tried to persuade her that carrots were actually very sweet. <laughs> and and she just wouldn't believe it. And mainly because she had the evidence of her own taste buds that were right. telling her the opposite. And of course, it wasn't until she broke that, um, that that uh, addiction, I suppose, and <laughs> and kind of re rewired her her taste buds a bit that she could really taste the the true sweetness of carrots. There has to be uh, some ways in which uh, what you do in the kitchen uh, informs what you do in the classroom. And I just I just wonder if 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 you could maybe make some connections for us between you know perhaps what you see going on. In, in, in the realm of uh, food prep and and the serving of a meal or the laying out of, of a feast, let's say, and and what we're called to do and, and be in the classroom as teachers. Yeah, a lot of it has to do with uh, the experience of providing basic sustenance for my own children too. <laughs> uh, the uh, Socrates in the Republic, uh, at one point he defines education as or at least he says the object of education, the aim of education is to teach us to love what is beautiful. Uh, and so going back to uh, some of our earlier comments about uh, taste and pickiness, uh, that at, at home, the even before we can uh, show our children a painting by Rembrandt and have it mean anything to them, you know, uh, <clears throat> we we give them food day in and day out. And so that's one of the natural places for us uh, thinking as parents to begin uh, preparing our children for loving what is beautiful, uh, what is good. Uh, and at the same time, acknowledging that humans aren't always predisposed. I mean, the, I guess that is why Socrates had to say it. Humans aren't always predisposed to love the best things. Um, some goods are easy to love. Chocolate is a chocolate bar is easy to love, uh, but the greatest goods uh, are sometimes harder to love. That it's a learned, uh, a learned affection. Uh, so Brussels sprouts and sweetbreads and <laughs> uh, you know, red wine instead of grape soda. Uh, are things that you have to learn to love. Uh, and so uh, there's, I mean, we could, there are all kinds of analogies and metaphors that we could talk about that uh, preparing food uh, is a kind of alchemy where you take these disparate elements of the world and put them together and uh, show them to uh, your guests the way that you might show 
the same kind of disparate elements to your students and help them uh, make sense of uh, or bring order in their minds to a chaotic world. But uh, at an even more basic level, that's uh, just the opportunity of sitting down to a meal is the opportunity to taste and see that the Lord is good. Uh, and, uh, but not uh, with, a, with a long view as well as a, a, a short-term pragmatic view. So I want my kids to eat their dinner every night, but I also have to keep in mind that I, I don't want to be raising a 40-year-old who mm. <laughs> has to have French fries with every meal. I, uh, I want a 40-year-old who can eat their carrots right? <laughs> or, uh, or, or eat peas or eat whatever might be put in front of them by uh, a host uh, mm -hmm. in, in, in any given situation, right? in any culture. Uh, because those things ultimately are also coming from the hand of God. Uh, and that, uh, that translates really nicely into what we are trying to get our students to do. Uh, there are things that are easy to love uh, in this world and in their lives. Uh, but often the classical teacher is, uh, is working to give them a taste for, for the best things. Yes, I think you're quite right, Sean. And I am the father of three young children. Uh, this month, my oldest will turn five, and we have one due in September. So three going on four here. And as, as a father yourself, perhaps the two of us can just, let's just talk shop for a minute. And maybe some of our listeners, uh, hopefully if we have some, some older and wiser listeners, they can just send me an email or something and, 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 and they can uh, sort us out here. Yeah, forward that along. That's, I, I certainly will. <laughs> but I, I'm sure you face the same things that I face day in and day out. And it's interesting for me to see myself going up against the things that I know my parents faced. I, I remember as the oldest, I, I had these memories. I remember the day that it dawned on me that uh, it, was, it was terribly rude of me to take my, my cup or my glass and shake it, you know, shake the ice around it to, to inform my, my mother that I needed a refill. <laughs> but this was something that she constantly would tell us not to do, right? And yet somehow like, okay, the drink is gone. It is empty. I look at it. I shake it. Mom fills <laughs> it up, right? <laughs> and I remember the day like it dawned on me like, oh, now I know why I shouldn't do that. I should say, mommy, may I please have some more, you know, milk or, or whatever it is. <laughs> and yet my children, you know, uh, until very recently, have uh, been, ha I've had to tell them day in and day out, you know, what is the right way to ask for more drink or, or, or whatever it is. And, and getting back to this idea of pickiness, you know, children are notorious for saying, well, I don't like that. And they've, I know for a fact, this is the first time it's ever been put in front of them in their little lives, right? <laughs> Like you've been around for like all of three years, and this is the first time I've ever served you this. There's no way on God's green earth that you know that you don't like this. Right. So where does that come from? <laughs> uh, and and I don't know. Is that just is that part of original sin? I mean, you tell me. Where is this innate sort of posture of uh, of pickiness come from? Do you have Do you have any ideas? Uh yeah, I mean, it's funny that you say original sin, but I think, I mean, it's, it's that old. Uh, I mean, uh, Adam and Eve had a world full of uh, culinary options. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and, they, and they still uh, insisted on having the one thing they couldn't eat. Uh, 
Right. Uh, and so I, I do. I, I mean, even even a sinless human uh, apparently falls prey to that. Uh-huh. Uh, so I think we do. We are predisposed uh, to it in some way. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah. I, and so it's it's something that has to be acknowledged. As like we've talked before, I think uh, uh, we have this little liturgical mantra at our dinner table where our kids uh, know that they're not allowed to say, I don't like something uh, uh, because of how dismissive it is uh, or, or because it seems like uh, it should grant them permission. It's always said like it should grant them a pass. Uh, uh, and so instead they have to say, X food is not my favorite. Uh, at which point mom or dad always responds, uh, it doesn't have to be your favorite but you have to eat it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, well, that, that, that just applies to so many areas of life. I, found my, I find myself very frequently telling my children, you know, my, my oldest in particular, who's, who's just now starting to, you know, work through, well, starting to listen, I guess, and, and, and realize that, you know, if, if, he, if he listens and, and, and obeys and uh, takes heed to my, you know, I, I'm trying to sound like Solomon, you know, if, it, you know, <laughs> if, if he will just hearken his ear to my words, right, then, then life goes uh, much better for him. <laughs> and, you know, this is, this is just the, the battle that all, all parents face with their uh, truly weak-willed children, right? We've kind of gotten this thing confused where we think that a child is strong-willed, right? When what we're really seeing is a manifestation of a weak will, yeah, and 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 in so many ways, it's our responsibility as parents to help uh, strengthen their will, and to help them uh, make good choices, and then also to try certain things, right? So getting back to this, you know, thing that happens at the dinner table on a very regular basis, you know, the child says, "Well, I don't like that." And I said, I say, well, you've never tried it before, right? <laughs> I, I mean, I'm, this is just the age-old back and forth, right? And and then, of course, you know, the the challenge then is is to is to get the child to to try it. And nine times out of ten, you know, uh, unless they've really just set their will against you, uh, that they're, they're actually going to enjoy whatever you put in front of them, right? right? Because I haven't given them a serpent, I haven't given them a stone. Uh, it's a piece of bread or, or it's a piece of, you know, meatloaf or what have you. Um, but I have very vivid memories, you know, as a child of, of my parents, you know, and, and, and this is probably, you know, generational and I'm trying to, you know, learn and relearn the things that I need to do at my own dinner table. But I, I have very many memories of sitting in front of my plate, the last leave of the table. Uh, you're not going to get up until you try it. You're going to taste it, right? You're not. You're not just going to wholesale dismiss it. Uh, and whether that was the right thing to do or not, I guess it depends on the situation. Yeah. And really, on, only the parents can know sort of what they're facing in terms of, uh, again, if their child has just set themselves against them, challenging their authority, what have you. Right. But um, you know, the, this idea of, of of taste and see is is really just saying try it. Yeah. Just try it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and in so many ways, in, in the classroom, I think the good teacher 
is is doing just that uh, is 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 feasting on the goodness of something in front of his or her students, and then saying, you know, you really should you really should try some of this. Try some of this. <laughs> yeah, and of course that sounds beautiful as we talk about it in in these in these sort of metaphorical terms. But I wonder, you know, when when you're the child sitting at the dinner table, and it's kind of a forced issue, right? Like you're gonna you're gonna eat, yeah, or you're gonna go to bed hungry, yeah, or maybe if you're weak-willed enough and your parents are weak-willed enough, they're gonna give in eventually. Or something <laughs> like that. Wait them out. <laughs> That's right. It's not a bad tactic uh, in some instances, depending on how uh, how hard mom and dad's day was. Um, <laughs> And in the classroom, you know, sometimes the things that we put in front of our students, we lay out this feast. Yeah. And it it still strikes them as a bit of a forced issue, or it's, mm. it's sort of I don't know. There's something about the assignmentness of it. Is that a word? Right. Assignmentness. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what do you think about that? I mean, John Senior, uh, someone that I that I love reading and find myself quoting more and more. He, he says that one one can can no more read a book uh, than one can love a girl on assignment. One can no more read a book on assignment than one can love a girl on assignment. Yeah. Um, so I don't know what, what what's going on there. What can teachers do to maybe lean more into this idea of of uh, encouraging children to eat good food and encouraging their students to to pursue their studies because we know it's good for them. Yeah. Uh... I think not to come back to the rest of the question, I don't want to make it sound like I'm passing the buck, but I think that the teacher is often in a difficult place there. Uh, And this comes home to me often because I'm a classroom teacher, but we homeschool our own children. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I see the role of teacher and the role of parent uh, very interconnectedly uh, but also see how my the, the experience of my children uh, or of me as a homeschool parent is very different from the students I teach uh, in school or the parents of those students. Uh, and one of the one of the the main differences is uh, uh, that there's this kind of disconnect between the two experiences. School often doesn't have to seem like real life. Uh, in a very meaningful way, uh, I think that the teacher, I think that the teacher is an is a bit of a novelty uh, <laughs> historically. Uh, that the whether it's whether it's uh, the Hebrew Old Testament or whether it's uh, Plato and Aristotle talking about the task of education, it's always this duty that is given to parents. Uh, and in the modern world. Uh, parents, uh, for a number of reasons, a variety of reasons, uh, contract part of that work uh, to teachers to come along and assist them, uh, but that it, it's a parental responsibility. And you see that in a different light as you're homeschooling than, if, than as you're, when you are uh, sending your kids to school. Uh, and with my kids at home, and this goes back to the dinner table too, uh, the thing I'm asking of them I, uh, I'm embodying for them. Right? When we sit down to dinner, 
And to your point, right, you, when you uh, offer a book to students in a classroom, you are reading it too and saying, try, you should try some of this. This is, this is great. Uh, but then at three o'clock, uh, you know, a, a bell rings or doesn't ring, depending on what kind of school you go to, and uh, everybody goes their separate ways. Uh, but at home, nothing changes. There's no, there's no three o'clock. Uh, and so they see mom and dad sitting down to the same food uh, that they're sitting down to. Uh, and mom and dad also know that this, this is the sustenance for today. <laughs> uh, and uh, we, they see us reading stories with them, reading on our own. Uh, we're, uh, you know, the to put it metaphorically, they see us you know, sitting down to our own private meals of Brussels sprouts and carrots and uh, whatever, even when we think they're not looking. That's right. Uh, and so the teacher, the teacher has to uh, uh, pray that they have that their students uh, have homes like that, hmm. uh, but then do their do their best to enact that in some smaller way. As the teacher, the ideal the ideal is that the teacher is enacting in miniature what life is like at home. Yeah. Uh, but we really are in that tough place, historically speaking, where we've also been talked out of that. That's right. uh, that education is ceded to schools and to mm -hmm. uh, teachers. Uh, and uh, I mean, that's a big deal in current events right now. <laughs> People are realizing. Uh, uh, how deeply that cuts in in more than one direction, uh, and so uh, it's it's a, a difficult time for that for that sort of uh, uh, struggle to be sorted out. Yes, yes, you're right. The same thing can be said of the church, right? There's sort of this the, the youth groupification of the Christian life for the young person. Let's say, you know, where in which the parents can take their, their son or daughter, hand him or her off to the youth minister and say, here you go. Their spiritual life is in your hands. Uh, good luck. Send them back <laughs> and, catechized. Yeah. That, that, exactly, right. Um, and of course, you know, uh, any person who has worked in, in a ministry of that sort, uh, given enough time, will start to bemoan the just the sheer absurdity of that, right? It's just not... It's just not, uh, well, it's not Christian, and it's certainly not the biblical mandate in terms of how, as you said, you know, uh, parents are, are given this, this responsibility. They extend and, and, let's say, mediate that responsibility through other adults, right. certainly, um, but not in this wholesale sort of, you know, okay, well, we'll just compartmentalize this part of their life. And, and it sounds absurd when we, when we think about it in terms of Christianity, although it happens, and, and maybe we're hopefully moving out of that trend. But, but you're, you're quite right to describe it as, as, as equally absurd in the realm of any other type of education being led out of ignorance, right? You know, um, and in part, you know, parents often find themselves, it can go the other, it can go the other way too, right? When, when the teacher thinks that his or her domain within their subject, let's say, extends into the home in such a way that 
you know, I, as your math teacher, can give you 30 problems to do tonight. And, I, you know, that may mean you and mom or you and dad sitting up at the kitchen table late into the night, right. tears flowing off you know, <laughs> into the floor. Um, but you got to do your math problems. Yeah. And so we do this to each other back and forth, right? Teachers uh, sort of giving responsibility over to the uh, parents uh, that, that they should be taken care of in the school and, and vice versa. Anyways, you know, all of this, as you say, is, is sort of coming to a head. And, and in part, I, I hope that, that the work we do through this podcast uh, will at least encourage people who find themselves in this position, teachers tasked with the very hard work of sometimes, you know, they're the only ones putting these good things in front of the student. Yeah. Uh, and, and that can be a tough spot to be in. So that's why I always encourage parents when they come into a parent-teacher conference to practice the art of narration in their own homes. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that that's one of the simplest ways that a, a parent can engage with, with his or her child. So as a history teacher, I tell my parents, you know, at the very least, and you don't want, you know, the old Seinfeld joke, you know, you don't want to do the very least, but if you're <laughs> going to do anything, you know, at the very least, you know, ask them, ask, ask, ask your, your, your child, you know, not just what did you study in history today, but can you tell me the story? Right. And if they can do that, then that's going to start hopefully a conversation yeah. that will go much further because they're practicing this in the classroom. They should be very well equipped to, to tell back, not word for word, but point by point, the story that they heard in their history class or literature class or, or any other class for that matter. And then you just lean in and ask good questions just to keep the, keep the conversation going. Yeah. And I think parents will be delighted to find that that, that goes a lot further than just, you know, how was your day or what did you, what did you learn at school today? Something like that. And that, and that anyone can do it. Uh, mm -hmm. The, uh, the, uh, I think in my, in my Cersei talk that you mentioned, uh, I made reference to one of my favorite authors, uh, Robert Capon, mm -hmm. who was a, an Anglican priest and uh, cookbook author, <laughs> uh, which seems like a marriage made in heaven. Uh, but he has this wonderful discussion of uh, the task of the amateur. Uh, and he acknowledges the the normal, the generally understood connotation of the word, but then points to its its root meaning that the amateur is the lover. Uh, and uh, that can be such a comfort to uh, parents who are in this position where they feel some lack of expertise. Uh, well, I'm not a teacher or, oh, I didn't have a classical education or I don't know how, how I can uh, be of much help here, but uh, that you don't need to be a professional anything uh, and homeschool parents are in the same situation uh, often, especially in the last few years when many people have found themselves thrown into it or, or embraced it out of uh, kind of desperation, uh, that the amateur loves and that that, God willing, comes natural to everyone. Uh, and that uh, the, uh, the task of the amateur is simply to, to love things, to love the world that has come from God. And that, uh, yeah, you can... Uh, you can show your children uh, how to love, uh, partly by simply loving them. 
but then uh, asking them to tell you the story <laughs> uh, is its own sort of declaration and demonstration of love. I love you and I love what you're learning. And, uh, uh, and then you can take it from there, let them see you loving other things. Uh, it's very much what we talk about the teacher trying to do in front of their students. And uh, the secret is uh, you, don't, <laughs> you, don't need, uh, you don't need any sort of pedigree to do that. Mm -hmm. Yes, one of the things that homeschool parents have to their benefit is, well, the fact that they, that they are operating in, in both of those roles simultaneously and oftentimes enter into that out of a desire in some part for a remedial education of their own. Mm -hmm. They're just so thrilled that they can go back and relive sort of the, you know, the, the missed uh, mother goose uh, stories or the, you know, the early, you know, elementary uh, readers or, or what have you, right. or, you know, frankly, you know, just because of the state of education for the last hundred years or so, um, probably get the high school education that they that they missed out on yeah and 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 in so doing uh go alongside their child and and be happy to be a co-learner with them and and the thing that that puts them you know in the role of a teacher of course is the fact that god has given them that mandate and they have you know being further down the road of life uh you know wisdom and 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 you know practical uh well, I guess practical knowledge in so much as it comes out as wisdom that they can apply in their reading of these things and in the working out and the application of these subjects with their student. And I, I would just hope that the classroom teacher would, would, would consider the, the opportunity to, to approach things with, with a beginner's mindset or, or to be refreshed, as it were, uh, each and every school year, so that it doesn't become, okay, well, you know, Mr. Bailey or Mr. Johnson has all the answers pertaining mm -hmm. to literature, and so I'm going to go, and I'm going to sit in this class, and he's going to give me all the answers, and I'm going to give him what he's looking for. No, 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 it's it's much more of a a thing we're doing together in which I would hope that the teacher would be able to, if if truly being refreshed in his or her uh, studies and, and, and teaching, show that yeah in in you know behind the lectern or or at the or at the desk and at the same time be stumped in front of the students and let them see what it looks like to work your way out of that that's right yeah <laughs> um i think i think uh, this isn't original to me but um something i've i've read on teaching suggested that the student actually mistrusts the teacher who has never who's never stumped right. or, um, you know, somehow acts as if he or she has it all figured out. Um, Cause yeah. inevitably you're lying. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I teach middle school boys primarily. And, and, and so I have some students that I think believe that I do know everything about history <laughs> And you know the temptation is is just to sort of keep that keep keep up that uh, that show, I guess. Yeah. Um, but it's so much more fun to just admit, 
what you don't know and then see the students not be really disappointed or not be upset, but then, you know, just, just walk with you. You know, we have a very small school, so right next door we have our library. I'm like, I don't know, let's go look it up, <laughs> right? Um, or let's, I'll have to get back to you on that, right? right. I mean, it's, it's what I was taught as, as a very young man working in a grocery store. If a customer came to you and said, you know, do you know where such and such is? No, but I'll, I'll, I'll certainly find out for you. Yeah. Right. And I think the teacher can can do the same thing and and can can model what it looks like uh, in that way to be a student. Indeed. Well, let's shift gears here for a minute and let's let's talk about film because this is another this is another interest of yours. Yeah. And I have uh, read some of your work through a website called Film Fisher. Um, maybe tell us a little bit about uh, that that project and how you came to it, and and perhaps uh, why you took an interest in in reviewing films and and maybe in so doing talk about your history uh, with with film and and how you developed a love for it. Sure, uh, I'll just probably bounce around <laughs> bounce around between those questions, but uh, the. Uh, uh, film Fisher is a is a fantastic uh, film review site uh, that's uh, very much uh, staffed by uh, classical thinkers. I think is a fair way to put it. Um, it was uh, originally originally a project of Christopher Perrins, uh, and I came to it through uh, my my friend and, and colleague uh, Joshua Gibbs, who. Uh, Parent had tapped to uh, run the site and uh, be the the editor, uh, and uh, and so I, I it's actually been uh, some time since I have since I published anything for them, but it was a really enjoyable uh, period, uh, and I continue to write about uh, film as I have occasion. Uh, film uh, as meant as much to me in my life and education as literature has uh, uh, for good or for ill. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, I, I really came to, I came to classical education uh, really in college. Uh, or I, I learned of it as a high schooler uh, and discovered that it was the thing that I wasn't getting and <laughs> wanted. And uh, uh, but in the meantime, I had really, uh, I had had a subpar education uh, that I had made up with trips to the library and the bookstore. And I would just sort of, uh, I would wander the classic section and just pull books based on name recognition. Mm. Uh, so, which uh, is very much a kind of dangerous, uh, I, I think probably, uh, a dangerous approach. It's by God's grace that uh, it didn't do more harm uh, than it did. But uh, so the same was was uh, true of movies. I I remember when uh, uh, we still had video stores, and you could just go and, <laughs> go and browse the shelves and, and pull down movies, and uh, just about any movie that had ever been made was was on the shelf in a decent video store. That's right. Uh, I mean, it, it used to be quite the event, you know, to yeah. go and 
and get a movie on a likely a Friday night, right? I mean, right. Uh, who, who had time back then, you know, to, to watch movies during the week? I mean, what a, what a, uh, that's something you did on, you know, in your leisure time on the weekends. But now, of course, you know, we have, we have these streaming services and, and I'm sure you have, you have some thoughts on how that has changed our relationship to film. Sure. You know, we're, we're probably, you know, here we are, us two old guys, right? We're, <laughs> we're the last of the old guard in terms of going to the, the old blockbuster. In fact, I lived in Alaska uh, years ago, and, and, and in Fairbanks, uh, we had, or was it in Anchorage? I can't remember. I think it was Fairbanks. We had the last blockbuster in the nation. Wow. And it closed while, while I lived there. And it was like going back in time Yeah, uh, to go there. But it was it was an event, you know. You went and and uh, maybe they had what you're looking for. Maybe they were all checked out. That's I mean, right. You just had to go and, and find out what was on the shelf. And there was a lot at stake because you were walking out with one movie, and that was it. Mm -hmm. uh, if you if it was disappointing, that <laughs> that was the movie you had at home. That's right. Oh, uh, yep. This, this, you know, mom and dad. Yeah, this 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 movie is a lot uh, raunchier than I expected. I guess we're not watching a movie tonight. Going to bed early. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's no just clicking clicking back a page and uh, yeah. making another selection. Uh, but and so the uh, movies uh, were were a, like a second literature to me growing up and. Uh, and again, for for better or ill, uh, mo mostly ill maybe, but uh, it was it was part of my introduction to story and the love of story and human drama. Uh, thinking back to uh, back a few minutes to that idea of homeschool parents uh, sort of getting their own remedial education. I, I that is certainly my experience. I've been a classical teacher for. Uh, the better part of 13 years. Uh, and there are still things that I encounter uh, as we educate our own children that I just never, never had uh, or never experienced. Um, great classic stories and, and literature. Uh, and even, even before that, I, I was, I was a high schooler before I read the Hobbit or the Chronicles of Narnia. And yeah. I was older than that before I really came to a deep understanding of Grimm's fairy tales and, uh, and so I, I made up some of that deficiency <laughs> through, uh, through uh, my experience with film. Uh, and so I, I, I do love it as a, as a kind of modern uh, medium of storytelling. Uh, my, my master's UD or my master's uh, thesis at the University of Dallas was on the novels of Graham Greene, uh, who was both a, uh, uh, a, a troubled but profound uh, Catholic writer uh, and uh, off, often also a screenwriter. Uh, and, and so those things uh, come together pretty easily in my mind. That's what has given me such pleasure in, in writing about uh, writing about film uh, and, and that I'm mostly a writer of, of reviews or of, of critical essays. And uh, whether it's film or books or even food, uh, I think the, that task of praising something well uh, right. is uh, is the same, uh, mm -hmm. convincing someone uh, that something is lovable, worth loving. Yeah. Yes, the the art of writing the encomium, <laughs> and, 
in order to, uh, that's something I'm working through. I, this word is, 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 is in my mind because I'm, I'm teaching middle school boys right now how to write in praise of something. That's right. And uh, they're, they're mostly looking forward to writing the vituperation. Uh, where they, <laughs> Which are easier they and, and more Yeah, that's right. And, right? And, 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 and in, some ways, in some ways more fun. I, I, you know, you mentioned Josh Gibbs, and when I was teaching high school, I, I used a format that he put together for writing reviews, and I used that uh, really as the, the basis of all essays that I had my high schoolers in my uh, American literature class write, because I wanted to, I wanted to, the, I wanted them to sort of, I guess break out of the some habits that they had formed, let's say, and this is how you write a, a book report, or this is how you write about a book. And I wanted them to think more about how they would write about a meal that they really enjoyed, yeah, or a film that they really enjoyed. Because those things, we tend to, you know, speaking of narrations, we, we narrate these things just out of a sheer love of the thing that we enjoyed, right? We, we mm -hmm. come out of the movie theater and we want to tell somebody about it. Right. Or we have, you know, we have that experience at the restaurant and we say, you know, if you're ever in town, you need to go eat here. Mm -hmm. And, and so, so these are things that I would like them to uh, kind of enter into that mode when, when they think about the, the book that they've, that they've been reading together. And so I think that's 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 a good practice to get into. Uh, before I forget, I, I didn't realize that Graham Greene wrote uh, wrote for for movies. Are, are there any that we recognize, or are there any that ever went to production? Yeah, in fact, he he really when he realized that writing novels was never going to pay the bills, or at least he assumed, uh, he really started writing novels that could be easily adapted uh, mm -hmm. to the screen. And uh, and he he wrote a few novels with that express purpose in mind and ended up cashing in. Uh, but sometimes the the there was this perfect marriage of high art and uh, popular cinematic appeal. Uh, and so the his best known probably is The Third Man with Orson Welles, uh, Carol Reed directed, and uh, it's it's phenomenal and real and that one in particular Green. Uh, wrote really the, the film treatment and then turned it into a novel. Uh, and so he very much had uh, the, uh, the ultimate film in mind. Uh, but he worked uh, in his day job as a movie reviewer for many years. Uh, and so a lot of cinematic elements work their way into even his narration uh, in, his, in his fiction. Uh, another one that I love is... Uh, the film adaptation of his novel, Our Man in Havana, uh, about this uh, um, accidental British uh, spy. He's uh, a, a vacuum salesman in, in Cuba who gets uh, roped into spying for the British government. Uh, and the character is played by Alec Guinness uh, in the movie. And uh, he's just uh, phenomenal. It's one, of his, uh, it's one of his more comedic roles and uh, even though we don't often remember Guinness as a comedic actor, no. uh, he's so good uh, in that role. Yeah, so there, there's some great films. Well, I have a few things to add to my to-watch list. I wonder this this uh, act of reviewing films or food 
just writing reviews, is this something that you would commend to any young person uh, who is, well, I, I don't want to ask too, too much of a leading question. <laughs> would, would you recommend it? And if so, why? Uh, I, I absolutely would. And, uh, and it's often uh, when I, I found myself teaching writing classes over the years, uh, it's often an activity that we uh, we spend a good deal of time on. Uh, so uh, when I was uh, taught sixth grade one year, and we did uh, progymnosmata and, uh, and comium writing was uh, a big part of that. Uh, and even there, uh, I would have them. Uh, we had we had a, a curriculum that we used where they were praising wise sayings and uh, historical figures, but I would also uh, just have them praise things that they liked, <laughs> uh, praise their favorite food or praise their favorite uh, book or movie. And, uh, and what we always talked about or what I commended to them was uh, praising in a way that is not empty or that is not flattery, uh, but praising in a way that convinces someone else to, uh, to embrace it. Uh, and, uh, and so I would commend that to everybody again, because I think that's the partly the task of, of every human right? we, uh, uh, and articulating our, our love or trying to interrogate without being too, uh, uh clinical about it, but mm -hmm. looking at, or, or thinking through the reasons that we have for loving things. Uh, can be helpful, uh, even in strengthening and encouraging our own loves. Uh, our, our task is to love the world and uh, like love it into into loveliness and uh, bring others along uh, in that task. And so, any any small practice in that is really great. Perhaps one of the ways we can connect what we were saying earlier about you know trying to get young children, in particular, to eat things that we know are good for them. And then this idea now of uh, producing things that, you know, praising good things, right? Yeah. I'm reminded of that idea of the bee, right? Who, who goes out and collects the pollen and then um, through the collection of this pollen and through a process of, of um, you know, uh, digesting it makes honey. And of course, you know, this, this is an idea that, that, you know, medieval Christians latched onto, and you'll see bees uh, depicted in manuscripts and, and connected with this idea of, oh, what's, what's the Latin phrase I'm, I'm searching for? The Lectio Divina. Lectio Divina. Thank you. And, and yes, I, I think this, this is, again, something we need to be reminded of. This is a part of our tradition. This is a way we have thought about uh, how we should operate in the world. Um, where, where there, there's so many good things to feast on, to collect, and to, to digest or to meditate on. And then we ought to rightfully um, give praise. And, and, and that there, there's a hierarchy of that praise. Ultimately, all praise is directed upward towards God, right? And so the, the student in the classroom who is learning to praise you know, as you said, wise sayings or to praise uh, the book that has been given that, them to read is, is practicing something that in its ultimate expression uh, 
ought to come forth as, as prayer, mm -hmm. uh, as a praise to God. That's right. And if we can, if we can initiate our students into that and, and, and let them practice it, then I, I, think, I think that's a very noble task and, and, and very much worthwhile. Yeah, and if, if education can be seen in that way, uh, then it's, it has a far better chance of working. <laughs> mm. uh, 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 there's an uh, English professor, uh, an Italian immigrant named Angelo Pellegrini. He wrote this book called The Unprejudiced Palette. And uh, he tells this anecdote uh, about uh, children who came and families who came from the old world. Uh, and he, he grew up the, the son and grandson of these uh, laborers who worked in vineyards. And uh, these families and children who came from the old world, uh, they were so used to uh, seeing, uh, they were so used to wine as a part of their daily life. Uh, children as, as early as they could stand. As soon as they were off milk, uh, their wine with dinner was uh, a given. And, uh, and then he tells stories about these families uh, who come to America, and uh, which is far more puritanical about, <laughs> about uh, those, those matters. Uh, and the, uh, the, the, every, the entire role of, uh, for lack of a better word, alcoholic beverages, uh, was subsumed out of the home life uh, and became a topic of discussion uh, in health class at school. Right? This is an unhealthy thing, stay away from it. Yeah. Uh, uh, and so they would, then the children would go home and they would be teetotalers, uh, but then they, would, <laughs> then they would go off to college or the professional world. Uh, and he's, he's speaking about the uh, mid, uh, mid 20th century. Uh, where then the pendulum would swing the other way, and the, uh, it was this uh, uh, means to the end of pleasure, and so uh, the the new norm was overindulgence, and uh, uh, but that for this uh, for this these immigrants when they would see these two extremes, both would astonish them mm -hmm. uh, because it was this uh, clinical treatment of this this impersonal and pragmatic treatment of a thing that they had only ever known as uh, festal, as the kind of lifeblood of, of existence, uh, as, as they took it for granted the way they took eating breakfast and lunch and dinner for granted. Uh, and it was, it was in that enculturation at the table that they developed uh, this lifelong proper love of the thing. Mm. Uh, and, and that that is really what it's a great metaphor for education. Mm. Uh, if it's this central thing uh, that is not uh, not existing in our lives for a limited time to serve a pragmatic end, uh, but uh, at the heart of what we are about as people, uh, then the the fruit of what we're doing is going to carry on uh, into eternity. Yes, I think enculturation is a good word. I was recently tasked with with talking through some of these things with my middle school boys, and you know we had uh, a couple of days discussion related to related to alcohol, and the thing that I encouraged them to do was first and foremost 
recognize that there is a culture within your home that pertains to all the things we're talking about, uh, you know, namely, namely alcohol. And you just go, you just pull the room and, 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 and things vary, right? right. Uh, you have your teetotalers, you have you know, your social drinkers, and then you have the kid in the class who, you know, who, who, whose family has been affected by alcoholism. Yeah. And, and, and there's all sorts of variations um, along the theme there. And so the thing I wanted to encourage them to do was first and foremost, recognize that there is a culture within their family and to then be thoughtful about that culture. And, you know, if they've been given a, if they've been initiated into a culture that relates to drinking, that is in line with, with the larger Christian culture, Mm -hmm. then, then they should, you know, especially while they are living under the roof and under the rules of, of their family, uh, honor that mm-hmm. and and then be very thoughtful and intentional about what you do when you branch out on your own and you establish your own household yeah or you find yourself living by yourself for that matter <laughs> and and then then you really have to be thoughtful about okay well what did mom and dad or grandma and grandpa or whoever it is you know what did they model for me what did they give me and and I just don't need to throw that in the window because you know because my buddy over here is, um, you know, uh, is trying to get me to do something different. Right. And so it seems to me that that's the only way to approach it now. I think if you and I had our druthers, you know, we would love to see, um, let's say perhaps, you know, probably what you and I would, 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 would consider a, a, a more historical or, or, I don't know, for lack of a better word, and it's going to make me sound terribly pretentious, nuanced way of thinking about alcohol. But at the very least, you know, just be thoughtful about it, right? Um, and, and know that, you know, if, if you have parents who love you, uh, they're going to teach you certain things that are for your benefit and for your safety and for your well-being. And, you know, if that means swearing something off, then that means swearing it off. Uh, until you're at a point where you can, where you can uh, make those decisions uh, for yourself, hopefully being informed by the wisdom of your your family and forefathers. Yeah, and and the yeah, well, it uh, um, it might strike us as unfortunate in some cases uh, the to command the option of swearing the thing off. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a great uh, it's a great test mm. uh, of of your thinking about the thing. So uh, everything uh, going back to taste uh, in, in cultivating taste uh, in children, uh, it's easy to confuse uh, taste with uh, being pretentious <laughs> mm-hmm, sure. uh, or taste with decadence. Uh, but but there's this you're kind of trying to avoid the extremes uh, both of decadence and indifference as you cultivate taste. Uh, if we're indifferent to something, it has no value to us. But if we become decadent in our use of a thing, uh, we've also missed the point, which, as you said earlier, is ultimately to point to God. Uh, and sometimes, whether the ability to swear it off uh, can be a test of or a testament to its value rather than our opposition to it. Uh, think of the monastic tradition, the, the swearing off of 
of uh, marital bonds uh, is not necessarily uh, a testimony of uh, of uh, condemnation. It's yes. not uh, to despise the thing that you have sworn off, uh, perhaps for some higher purpose. I think I think that's well said, Sean. Uh, I want to circle back to movies in in, in sort of the uh, as our as our time uh, near uh, nears an end here. I wonder, as a father of young children in particular, do you have any films that you recommend people share with their families? You know, um, I guess I guess on, on one extreme, you know, we, we could we could quote John Senior where he says, you know, we should just smash our televisions, <laughs> and 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 there's that. But uh, and and then of course, you know, you have you have the children that are raised by the television, right? Um, is there a way for us to be thoughtful and intentional about things like film, for example, which I've found just as a personal anecdote, you know, when I decided to get rid of, you know, the subscription services and whatnot and, and just, just get some DVDs, <laughs> I found that my children will watch the same movie over and over again with great delight. And I don't have to worry about what's going to come up next or that it's going to keep, you know, playing past the point of, uh, you know, how those, those services are set up to just keep streaming. Yeah, uh, you know. Do you have any? Do you have any movies that you recommend that families watch together? Uh, yeah, and uh, I'd say that partly to your concern, even before you get to the point of deciding what movie to watch, uh, so much is communicated to your children about when and how you watch them. Yeah. Uh, we. Uh, <laughs> Our television is like our ironing board. Mm. Uh, it is not. It is not uh, the centerpiece of an altar that we've set up in, the, in the, like the, the large room in our house. Uh, we stick it away and we pull it out when the occasion calls for it. Uh, right? It's, you know, it's, it's not mounted above the mantle like the like the Romans would have mounted their uh, ancestral gods and. Mm -hmm. uh, or what have you. Uh, and so that immediately speaks symbolically to what we think is the, the significance or the importance of it. it is not a central thing in our life. Yes. Um, it is uh, ancillary, uh, much like the ironing board. <laughs> when you got a wrinkly shirt, get it out. Uh, but if we put the ironing board in the middle of, of our dining room and left it there all the time, it would be weird. Uh, and then, and then, yeah, we, uh, we, and I want to say this, it's, it's very possible this piece of advice came from somebody like Josh Gibbs. Uh, but uh, for a long time, we have uh, been really intentional about uh, minimizing the number of cartoons that we show our kids mm -hmm. uh, just because of the, the medium itself uh, is one that gives us pause, uh, not that it's evil and we show what we do show our kids animated movies, but that a steady diet of that uh, seems like it could be um, counterproductive to the imagination uh, uh, or just the taste for, again, real things. Uh, and so we, um, uh, we give preference to older films, uh, especially films that were made before the, the mid 1970s or 1960s. Uh, when the, the Hayes Code was sort of legislating morality in movies. Uh, and so you, even, even a cold viewing uh, is fairly safe, uh, but we usually, uh, I don't think we've ever shown our kids a movie we haven't seen first. 
Uh, and so uh, I, movies that that are very much like fairy tales in that they uh, can uh, lionize or even uh, exaggerate the virtues. Uh, a lot of Westerns are really great about that. So we've shown our kids uh, High Noon, uh, and The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, uh, uh, and we, they love Charlie Chaplin movies. Uh, and the, the entire idea of the, uh, the film being, Charlie Chaplin movies, silent films in particular, are so different from literature in that they, uh, they rely so much on motion. Uh, and so the, the physical comedy of, of those films is really great and the kids uh, love it, but it's not celebrating uh, or inculcating any kind of vice. <laughs> Uh, and then we do have a few, uh, most of the animated films that we show our kids uh, are Pixar films. Uh, uh, Wally is a movie that we watch uh, quite a bit, which I always argue to my wife is just uh, 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 loosely based on the Divine Comedy. <laughs> uh, and, then, uh, and then we watch Ratatouille, uh, which is uh, very much uh, uh, in our wheelhouse. Uh, uh, the uh, and we haven't shown them The Incredibles, but Brad Bird is the the director of both of those movies, Ratatouille and The Incredibles, and yes. uh, and both are these great uh, takedowns simultaneously of uh, egalitarianism that everyone is everyone is mm -hmm. the same and everyone gets a trophy and everyone is special, uh, but also exceptionalism. So back to that kind of decadence and indifference distinction uh, that thinking of yourself too highly is as problematic as thinking of everybody as uh, equally gifted and uh, uh, and uh, both of those movies do a great job of revealing that or pulling pulling back the curtain on, on those issues. Hmm. Well, thank you for those recommendations. And thank you also for touching on, you know, the, the way that you, that you show films in your house. And uh, I think I think that your description there will will help a lot of people. And if they can if they can find ways to 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 decenter that 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 giant black screen, right? And and like you said, put it away and bring it out on occasions where again you're you're making a very intentional choice to uh, to to put this thing in front of you versus it always just being there or running yeah. in the background, right? Uh, as but and to circle back even the one of the principles in choosing the the movies that we show is very much like uh, our discussion uh, or our principle of you know, how we feed our children uh, so much children's entertainment today uh, is it's really insulting <laughs> it just really uh, talks down to or treats children as very stupid uh, and uh, and vapid uh, and so in the same way that you want to feed them in a way that will make them uh, competent 40-year-olds uh, who aren't embarrassing at a dinner party. Uh, you want to feed them uh, entertainment that is similar, uh, uh, not, not heady psychological thrillers, but things that, that treat them seriously as humans uh, and that uh, they might not get everything or appreciate everything, but they're watching with you uh, and it's understood that this is something I grew up into. Mm -hmm. Two more questions for you, Sean, and then, then we're going to end our show here. What is one 
meal, let's say, that you would recommend parents uh, fix for for the whole family. And and I'm wondering, uh, you know, could could you could you give us something that I don't know, let's say, might not um, might not you know, be, be the most popular thing in the world, but it's probably something people should be eating. Uh, one meal, whole family should be eating. Uh, the, oh, Adrian says sushi. I think that's a great, uh, that's a great answer. Uh, and we do, that's one of the things that we have worked with our kids on. They love to make sushi at home. So we do that quite a bit. Uh, it's textures and tastes that are often foreign to us. Uh, and so I would say that's probably, uh, yeah, it is. It can be beautiful and it's, it requires a lot of patience and a very sharp knife and uh, 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 probably foreign cuisines uh, of, of any kind would be on that list. Uh, some, some kind of uh, stir fry. And so it may be different based on the experience of an individual family. So I would say a meal that would stretch the whole family uh, and stretch them together. Uh, so go to the, go to the local Asian uh, grocery store and uh, pick, a, pick something from the produce aisle that none of you recognize <laughs> uh, and figure out how to, how to prepare it and how to eat it. And, uh, uh, and again, just like the student seeing the teacher uh, struggle with a book uh, or, or experience their own ignorance in a subject, uh, the, the mom and the dad uh, <laughs> training their own palate uh, or taking at least the risk uh, on, on something new or unusual uh, is, is a good thing to, to see and experience. So maybe that's uh, a cop-out, but... Uh, that, that would be probably what yeah. I would recommend. I, I think that I think that's great advice, Sean. Our final question, as is our habit on the show, I would like to ask you if you could either share a favorite quote of yours, something that has has stuck with you uh, and informs uh, your life on on a regular basis, or perhaps maybe you have a book recommendation for us, something that you wish you had read earlier in your life that you would like to recommend to our listeners? Uh, <clears throat> uh, maybe I can quickly offer, offer both. I think they, they probably go together. Uh, uh, one, of, one of the books that I came to early enough that it really was formative uh, uh, for me was G.K. Chesterton's Orthodoxy, uh, which is uh, in its own way uh, about education sort of his own uh wayward self-guided education into the faith uh and uh he says at one point uh he commends asking of any man if he is pagan enough to die for the world and christian enough to die to it uh and that is uh, a sort of dichotomy or principle a, a, contra a contradiction uh, that uh, that I think about a lot. I, I, I realize just as I'm saying it that, that that's a theme that has come up probably in our conversation today. Uh, that both this great love of the world 
the way that the pagan might love the world enough to die for it, uh, but also uh, this understanding that those loves uh, point to something higher than the world and have to transcend the world. Uh, and, uh, and, and so you must also be uh, Christian enough to die to the world. But the, the great glorious promise of God is that uh, those who die to the world have it given back to them in the end. Uh, uh, and then uh, on a related note, I think one of the books, or maybe uh, a book by an author that I wish I had discovered much earlier is um, uh, Beauty for Truth's Sake by Stratford Caldecott, uh, which is uh, it's a companion to uh, his book Beauty in the Word, but Beauty for Truth's Sake is uh, largely uh, a meditation on the nature of beauty and then also how it relates to the, the arts of the quadrivian in particular. And uh, that, is, uh, that is a whole topic and train of thought that I uh, just uh, enamored of and wish I, had, wish I had had opened up to me long ago uh, when I was a student in high school uh, hating, uh, or at least feeling, uh, feeling uh, like geometry had no, no purpose uh, or value. And uh, I had, by God's mercy, come to see how mistaken that was, but uh, I really had no, uh, no one trying to convince me otherwise, except to say, you might use this in work one day. <laughs> uh, so uh, Beauty for Truth's Sake would be the book that I would highly, highly commend. Wonderful. Well, Sean Johnson, you've been very generous with your time. And I think you've given us a lot of food for thought. Ah, there I am with the puns again. <laughs> All right, it's quitting time. Thank, thank you, Sean. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. We invite you to experience the art of teaching through interactive learning communities at our Patreon page. Visit patreon.com forward slash classical education. Also, be sure to join the conversation on our Facebook community at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash classical education. We are a listener supported podcast, so your support makes this podcast possible. As the great artist and educator John Ruskin once wrote, well, my friends, the final result of the education I want you to give your children will be in a few words this. They will know what it is to see the sky. They will know what it is to breathe it. And they will know best of all what it is to behave under it as in the presence of a father who is in heaven.